Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Steve Marks and Kim Kaiser from Craft Creamery coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. She is the owner of Avondale Food and Wine, Mary Clarkson. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great, Eric. I'm happy to be here on this fall day. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, post-Houston, the new mixed-use development currently under construction in the former Barbara Jordan Post Office downtown, announced that it's going to open in the middle of November. And they also announced a whole bunch more food vendors for their uh, post-market, the food hall that's coming to that facility, including Roberta's, the very famous pizzeria from Brooklyn, Garage Mahal, an Austin-based Indian food truck, and Moto Ramen, a new concept from Tiger Den chef and co-founder Mike Tran. Mary, I'm going to say that Roberta's is the big news here. This is uh, arguably one of the most famous pizzerias in the country. They have a couple locations in Brooklyn and another one in LA. Houston will be the fourth. Now, I know you go to New York on a regular basis. I assume that you've been to Roberta's, so maybe maybe tell people a little bit about what makes it special. I was at Roberta's just uh, about a month or so ago. It it's like the OG OG spot of Brooklyn. It it's got I don't know. It's it's got this feeling that you that Brooklyn used to have, right? <laughs> it was a lot of burnt out warehouses and grunge and rock and graffiti everywhere. It's it's just it, emblematic of the neighborhood in which it's in and which it's in. And the pizzas are incredible. Um, it's a spot. It is the one spot that on every trip I'm in New York and I will make a trip to Roberto's. I love it that much. And I am like, I am beyond ecstatic that it's coming here. It's, it's the friendly service. It's the rotating pizzas. You know, they have four or five stalwarts and then, they have seasonal ones, daily ones that change, um, their pasta program, their um, organic farming that they incorporate. Uh, the, the ingredients are top notch and the pizzas are usually quickly devoured. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there's quite a bit coming to Post Houston. Salt and Time from Austin and their burger concept, a seafood market and restaurant from Norwegian chef Christopher Hotov a wine bar from Cezanne Samolier, Mark Bright, and three restaurants from Top Chef slash James Beard Award winner Paul Key, including Eastside King, which is certainly one of those Austin favorites, as well as Tycoon and a Filipino restaurant. And, and I'm excited about all of those things. But if I had to guess like what's going to get me to post Houston most often, it's going to be Roberta's. If it's anything like if it lives up to anything like the Brooklyn original. I mean, as long as they're using the same type of oven that they use um, in Brooklyn, it's going to be amazing. And this is, I mean, it's not their first gamble outside of New York, but this is their first gamble outside of East coast, West coast. And I'm sure they've done their homework and know that we are a foodie destination. So we are going to hold them hopefully to the same standard as the Brooklyn original. I, I can't say how much I love this place. And the prices of Roberta's are great. You know, you can have an incredible meal for two, 
very inexpensively. I love their pictures of beer that they do too. Like they're not, it's a not too fancy pizza spot, which is how I like my pizza spots. That's how it should be. Yeah. And we'll see, you know, I, you know, they're going to have to work within the constraints of the food hall, right? So they may not, they may not have the pictures of beer. The prices may be a little bit higher just because the overhead is kind of what it is. But if the quality is there, then I, that won't matter to me as much. <laughs> We're not price sensitive when it comes to pizzas is what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, I, I am price sensitive when it comes to pizza, but what, what I'm willing to pay for pizza keeps inching up a little bit. You know, when I go to, when I go to Pizarro's and pay 25, 30 bucks for a 16 inch New York, when I go to tiny champions and pay, you know, 18, 20 bucks for a, a medium pie that basically feeds two people, you know, I, it, as long as it's kind of in that ballpark, it, they'll be just fine. Do we know, do we know the exact opening of Roberto's? I mean, I know a lot of the announcements have been slated in general terms, but do we know a more specific date? So so the whole facility is opening November 13th. And I asked the publicist who's been my point of contact for this, will Roberta's be opened on that date? And the answer was they expect that most of the restaurants will be open, but exactly which ones will be open. It's, it's really too soon to say. So we'll get a better fix on that closer to the opening, but you know, if not exactly on November 13th, certainly by the end of the year, at least that's the expectation. I mean, I think the only person or chef that should be worried about them coming into town is Angelo from Angie's Pizzas. I mean, his pizzas are that kind of Roberto's style. So I I think that's who we should take when we go visit it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I think that there's room for multiple excellent pizzas. And of course, Angelo is focused on Cafe Louie where he's not even making pizzas. So you know, this is a, uh, I, I will be very curious to get his take on Roberta's, of course. But as far as I'm concerned, it's like burgers and tacos and everything else. There's always room for another excellent pizzeria in town. Yes. Let us move on to topic number two. Uh, this is a story, actually, that I, I should say you you kind of pointed me in the direction of. Brandon Kern is Houston's newest master sommelier. He is a veteran of Pappas Brothers Steakhouse, currently working for The Art of Cellarine. Mary, I'm just going to throw it to you. What does it mean for Houston to have a new master psalm? By my count, this gives us six total in the city. I think it's pretty exciting because of the youthfulness of Brandon, not just in terms of his age, but in terms of, of the way he speaks about wine and makes you feel comfortable getting outside of your kind of normal routine with wine. He, he helps guide people in a way that isn't intimidating. And that's really what I want wine to be for, for people in the city. I want them to be able to trust somebody that is obviously incredibly educated about wine, but not feel like they're being spoken down to. And um, for me personally, I think he's probably the most relatable master psalm in our community right now um and just a breath of fresh air and it's such an amazing thing for our city um it's it's so such an accomplishment to reach this it's incredibly hard as you said in your article there's only 200 in the world so the fact that we have five or six now is 
incredible. Um, and you can, we can all access him as a consumer, which is nice. A lot of times master sommeliers work for big distributors or work for, you know, uh, like a whole foods, for example, um, corporate or a country club and you can't really access them. So I'm excited about this. Well, yeah, just explain to people what you mean, because I, I was not aware that I, I understood that the art of cellaring had a private wine storage facility and, and memberships and lockers and all that, but they, they also have areas that are open to the public. So AOC, our art of cellaring um, is inside the loop. It's kind of right off Kirby um, and 59 area. It's so, you know, it is a members only place, part of it um, for wine storage, but they also have the Texas wine school there, which the consumer can sign up for wine classes or sit for their W set. Sometimes, you know, I had one of my girlfriends last week that was like, I want to sit for my intro exam just as something to do and be educated. So um, the consumer can do that, which is really cool and interact with them, but they can also um, buy wine from this space, which I would say the closest uh, wine retailer, boutique wine retailer to them would be Houston Wine Merchant off of Shepherd. Um, but they have far more wine than Houston Wine Merchant. I think he said something like 3,500 different wines. Um, it's not laid out in a store format. So, you know, you will need somebody like Brandon or one of the staff members to guide you upstairs and show you or, you know, sh show you through the rocks and uh, based off of what you want, but still the opportunity that you can pop in and have a master sommelier guide your wine choices. I mean, I'm, I'm a little jealous, honestly, that's really, really cool. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really cool. And, you know, I think one of the other things you sort of pointed out is that he's a young guy and it, and he's still, you know, he's been in the wine world for, you know, eight or nine years now, but, but that's a relatively quick rise to master Sam. And so he, he has a more, you know, progressive attitude about things like natural wine and he's willing to try them and explore and learn, you know, he's not, he's not going to be Justin Van, right. He's not going to be, you know, up on all the funkiest, most obscure uh, pet gnats coming into the market. But <laughs> if you want to, if you, if you want a little, if you want a little balance, if you want someone who, who really knows and loves Bordeaux and champagne, but also can recommend, you know, a cool new thing to try. He's, he's your guy. I think he's, he's, he's so, he's funny. He's, he's a sweet, he's a sweet man. And the way that he talks about wine, I think is something the younger consumer is going to be able to relate to more. I mean, I cannot tell you the amount of times or the number of restaurants I've been to in my life where the song basically kidnaps your wine choice so you're you know you're like i want this wine and they're like well actually i have something i'd recommend in place of that it's you know i think our got i think our job in wine is to listen to the consumer and and help guide them but if they know what they want it's certainly not our job to correct them or make them feel less than and brandon is a consummate pro so i think for people that want to learn wine this is a great place to start well, but of course, when we dine together, you do kidnap the wine list and say, this is what we're ordering. I typically do, but I, I defer, like if I'm, if I'm at a place that I'm excited to be at, you know, if, if Justin Van's picking my wines, I'm going to let him, you know, tell me what he's excited about and listen, because he knows more about wine than I do. So, you know, but not everybody's that way, but yes, for you, I do hijack you. Yes. <laughs> All right. Let us move on to topic number three. 
Lulu's, the new Italian restaurant from Armando's owners, Armando and Cinda Palacios, is now open in River Oaks. Mary, you're, a, you're an upper Kirby River Oaks type. Let me, let me just ask you, are you excited about this new addition to your neighborhood? I can walk there from my house, so yes. <laughs> um, it's really pretty. I have been watching them build it out, and I'm just like, oh my God, y'all are taking forever. But that is the city of Houston these days, and they hired a big shot architect from New York, and I have not been in it, but I've walked by it and peeked through the windows. Um, it's beautiful. It's light-filled. It's art-filled. It's tastefully done. It's refined. It's exactly what that neighborhood wants. Um, I'm curious to see how it compares to the original in the Hill Country, which I have been to. Uh, I think, you know, I'm sure... Okay, well, we'll say a couple things about the one in the Hill Country, because the menus are are similar. They have, they have some different preparations, but they're, they're pretty similar. Um, I think, you know, the Hill Country... It, their location in the hill country is like the storied old building so i think having to recreate that in a shopping center is probably a really difficult task so they went a little more sleek uh in appearances than the one in the hill country and i think from what i've seen from the menu it's a little more refined uh than the one in the hill country i mean people that are dining in the hill country honestly they're just so grateful to have options to choose from that wasn't always the case um this location here is just on the street from the original Carabas, and not that it's the same in any way, shape, or form, but I mean, Carabas kind of sets the bar as well as Giacomo's for the neighborhood in terms of Italian. So, you know, they had to tweak their menu and, and their concept a little bit to uh, hopefully stand out from, from their peers in the neighborhood. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think Giacomo's is more sort of vegetable forward, you know, more kind of Italian that you'd get in Italy and, and Lulu's is a little more Italian American, right? They're doing, you know, spaghetti and meatballs and, and Frito Misto. And, and I, I think that's all to the good because I, you know, sometimes that's all I want, right? I, I want the, the slightly more decadent, you know, lobster ravioli or veal or whatever. And yeah, I wouldn't really go to Giacomo's for, well, you can't get those things at Giacomo's, so I, I wouldn't go there for that. They have spaghetti vongoli on the menu, the little neck clams. Like, that's the dish I want to try when I go, because I have that dish every time I go to Prego. And I swear to God, I've never had any dish in the city that compares to that, uh, for that style of dish. So I want to see how they do with that. Um, but the bar's intimate and tiny, and what a nice counterpart to Armando's. No, absolutely right. And Ar Armando's has that, you know, especially on Thursday nights, has that reputation as being, you know, very lively, you know, very much a party. Uh, Lulu's, I think, will be a little more subdued. They do plan to introduce uh, breakfast and brunch service kind of as they, once they get rolling. And, you know, I think that kind of small town, you know, for Lulu, that small town charm makes its way to the corner of Kirby and Westheimer. That'll all be to the good. Absolutely. And I, I don't think it'll be quite the cougar den that Armando's is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Mary, I'm going to say that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurant of the week. Stick around. I am very pleased to welcome a new sponsor to the show, 
It is Balcones Distilling. This is a Texas-based maker of spirits, one of the most decorated craft distilleries on the planet. They make single malt whiskey, which is part of this American single malt movement that has been happening. My personal favorite Balcones expression is their flagship Texas One, a single malt. It's got a very dark color. It's got a very rich flavor. It's silky. It's full on the palate. You get notes of butter and marmalade. And then it finishes with those lovely burnt sugar notes, that coffee toffee flavor. You know, I like I like bourbon. I like whiskey. I like scotch from all around the world. But but I find that this Balcones Texas Single Malt really just satisfies all of my cravings. And so I encourage people to look for it. Look for it on back bars. Look for it on stores. I drink it neat. If you want to add a little water, that wakes it up a little bit. If you prefer to cool it down over a big rock, I, I respect that too. But I think the important thing to know about Balcones is that if you try it, I think you'll like it. Look for it at bars, look for it at retail, and give Balcones Distilling a try. So, Mary, for our restaurant of the week, I want to talk to you about Casa Nomad. This is a new Tulum-inspired spot from the owners of Wicklow Heights. And I'm going to preface this by saying that we we did not have a good experience at, at Casa Nomad. And I want to be sensitive to the fact that they've only been open for a week. And, you know, everybody in the restaurant industry is still facing challenges with staffing and cost of goods and training and, and everything else. So I, I want to be... I want to be respectful of that. I, I, I will say right off the top, I am not writing Casa Nomad off. I will go back to Casa Nomad at some point in the future. But what do you what do you take away from a meal when basically everything goes wrong? I love it when old Eric Sandler comes out to play. <laughs> what? So what, uh, what did I like about Casa Nomad? Um, and what did I not like? Okay. The vibe is really cool. Um, the atmosphere, it's directly across from Degama and the, uh, I don't know what to call that development other than the Shepherd and Six, uh, development. They call it MKT. MKT. Okay. The MKT development. So, um, unbeknownst to me, when we first sat down, I don't think I realized that it was strictly outdoors. Um, and it's covered and the night that we were there, the weather was fine, uh, kind of hanging strung uh, ropes, transporting you sort of to Tulum. <laughs> um, and it's only 28 seats, I think, 26, 28 seats is small. Uh, and I think probably for the cocktail scene, like if somebody wanted to go there before or after dinner to have a drink, I think it's probably like, that's what you should treat it as. Um, the food out of the four courses we had, only one of them was really edible. Yeah, it was, it was a really rough day for the food. And again, I, I want to be sort of respectful, but I also feel sort of obligated to our audience to be honest about what we experienced. I, I will say that tuna tostada was perfectly fine. Yeah. It, you know, the tuna was nicely seasoned. The tostada was crispy. It's, it's a familiar dish. It was fairly well executed. I would order that again. The, the biggest two problems, I would say, were the two beef dishes, uh, both the short rib and the skirt steak, because they were just so oversalted. 
Someone was in love in the kitchen because they were using the salt. Yeah, they were basically inedible. And we took a couple bites just to sort of confirm that we had experienced that there's way too much salt. And then we sort of pushed them to the side. Uh, you know, the other, the, other, the other problematic dish was the ceviche. Um, it had octopus. The octopus was just super chewy. You know, I'm going to say it was probably in the marinade for too long or it wasn't prepared properly before it was put in the marinade. I don't really know. But, you know, octopus is delicious when it's firm and meaty. And it's awful when it tastes like you're chewing on a rubber band. And that's really kind of what we had. So again, I, I don't want to condemn Casa Nomad necessarily, but, and, and the staffing problems were evident. You know, our server was uh, very friendly, very sort of uh, willing to be accommodating, but didn't really know the menu, didn't relate well, didn't have any feel for kind of that, when to come to the table, when to leave us alone, you know, all those skills that, that a more experienced person would, would have. So I, I will say it's a young crowd. It's a well-dressed crowd. It's a great location. Everyone seemed to be having a good time. I just assume that that means they didn't order either the skirt steak or the short rib. Yeah. I'm just going to, for now, until you revisit it, I'm going to put it in a, this is a spot where you grab a cocktail column. It's, not a place where you grab a bite for now, right? Hopefully that changes. No, I, I think that that's right. And, and we should say it's all still a little bit of a work in progress because they're opening a much larger kind of high-end patio bar called Highline Park that, you know, Casa Nomad is like a little strip within what will be the larger Highline Park. And so, you know, once that opens and they're kind of fully operational, I think we'll get a better sense of kind of what they're capable of. But but for now, I mean, this was, you know, as I, you know, they asked for feedback and I gave them feedback. This was, this was probably one of my worst meals of 2021. And I, I, I'm with you. I, I, like I said, let's I be honest. Back. We had a, we had a second dinner afterwards at Nancy's hustle. It was that kind of party. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah, we had, a, we had, we had a, a supplemental pasta dish and dessert at Nancy's hustle and, and a well-deserved bottle of wine. <laughs> yes. So I, like I said, I want to be honest with the audience, but I also want to be fair to Casa Nomad and just say it was a bad day for them. Hopefully they turn it around and uh, I will go back. I'll give them uh, maybe three or four weeks to, to get them uh, to get their sea legs under them. And then we'll try it again. You'll, but, you'll give them a second date. <laughs> I will give them a second date. Uh, but as I do, anytime I have a really bad experience at a restaurant, I really, I always try to go back out of a sense of a professional obligation because I, I feel like maybe it was a fluke. Like maybe it was just a bad night. Maybe something went wrong. You know, I, I will say we, we came at their invitation and at their expense. So, you know, they, they set the timing. Uh, they knew why we were there. They know what I do for a living. They should have been better prepared than they were. Uh, I, I don't really quite understand why they weren't which is why I feel sort of comfortable talking about this. It's not like we, you know, they were open, they were serving, they were charging hey, people good money. Them. No, you didn't surprise them. No. So again, that's why I feel sort of comfortable talking about this at all. But yeah, I always, I, whenever, whenever an experience goes really badly, I always, I always like to give it a second chance. And then if the second version is, is, is really bad, then that's it. That, that's all you get from my, from my perspective. Fair. 
more than fair. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I will say, you know, we did go to Nancy Cecil afterwards. That uh, ricotta gnocchi with the roasted mushrooms and their new bass cake with uh, lemon and poppy seeds. Can't say enough nice things about either one of those dishes. No, no wonder, uh, you know, when we were there on a Thursday night, you know, there was an asterisk game getting out. They, they had sort of gotten quiet around 9, 930. And then by 10 o'clock, they were basically full again. And it's just a testament to, to what a good job they do over there. No, the food was great. Um, there was a sparkling wine. Justin Van has a, a kind of second uh, wine list called, I think it's called Special Sauce, if I'm not messing it up. But it's just an abbreviated list of kind of his favorites. And we had a, a French sparkling uh, from that, that list that was delicious and well-priced. And um, that's exactly what a restaurant like this I want, is to have a, have a great wine that's moderately priced with some delicious food all right mary i'm gonna say that does it for the restaurant of the week thank you very much thank you eric and i'll be right back with the crew from craft creamery i am joined by two of the owners of craft creamery a new ice cream shop in montrose Chef Steve Marks, welcome to the show. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Chief Tasting Officer Kim Kaiser, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for doing this. Steve, let me let me just start with you, because I, I know you a little bit. I mean, I, you know, you were you were on the crew of the burger guys, the kind of late lamented, I mean, almost revolutionary burger joint uh, in Houston that was kicking around about, I don't know, about 10 years ago. Um, just on the, I wasn't just on the crew. It was all me. <laughs> I, I wonder how the other two guys would feel about you saying that. There was Brandon yeah, was, and what was the, I can't even think of the other guy's name. Jake. Jake. Right. Jake. Uh, it was all, it, they helped. Clearly there was a lot of help in execution. The recipes and concepts were me. That was, Fair enough. Kind of, that was always kind of the deal. So what was your, what was your kind of background or, or how did you enter the world of professional cooking? Um, so, uh, born and raised on a farm, I'd always known that I was going to somehow be involved in food and, um, Thanksgiving when I was like 15, my grand aunt asked me, what do you want to do? What do you want to be when you grow up? And I told her at that time, I think I want to be a chef. And she sat on the board of directors for Sunkist, which at that time was a farmer's co-op. And she knew a lot of people. And she made some phone calls and Georgia was a person that if she made a couple phone calls, people would listen because that was kind of her, kind of her gig. And at that time, all of the chefs in the world were French and she got me an apprenticeship in London and graduated on a Thursday. And on Monday I was on an airplane and flew to London and was there for almost 10 years. Wow. So a traditional apprenticeship. Um, I did an externship at La Berger outside of Paris, uh, the longest running three Michelin, continuously running three Michelin star restaurant in the world. And, um, you know, I did that for, until Chef passed away, the family went af offered me the restaurant at the time I was the Sioux. And it just didn't seem like the right thing for me. I was, you know, 30-ish and it just wasn't, it didn't seem like the right gig. So came back to the States, um, bought wine for a company that's kind of like Specs that doesn't exist anymore and um 
wound up working at Costco for eight years, uh, running commercial bakeries. I was a, I ran 37 bakeries for them and, um, got back into the restaurant world for a while. I was a technically owner, but the chef of a brew pub in California, the second licensed brew pub in the state of California. So I came to Texas in 2005 and, um, you know, had a few jobs around town and my first gig, I was with, uh, Yalapa and Jake, who was my business partner in bird guys was my Sue there. We were out trying to stay connected after we had both left Yalapa, trying to find a good place to have a burger. Couldn't find one. So we built burger guys. Yeah. And I guess for people who, who don't remember mm-hmm. Texas beef, super creative toppings and, uh, some of the best milkshakes I've ever had in my entire life. And don't forget the French fries. Oh the yeah. French duck fries, fat fries. The French fries were kind of a pride and joy. And, and for me, I know you guys sometimes talk about throwaway fries. I didn't make throwaway fries. Uh, we, we consciously wanted to make sure we paid attention to the fries. Yeah. So Kim, let me, let me just bring you into this conversation and then we'll, we'll, we'll get to craft creamery. What, what was your background prior to kind of joining in on this project? So my background is, um, is really in, in business and corporate type business. And I, my last gig in corporate, which, um, I left in 2012, I was VP of sales for my company and we grew the company from 14 million to 40 million in a pretty short amount of time, which in a, in an industry that was declining and then left to start my coaching practice in 2012. And so when I met, um, when I met Steve, which is um, about two and a half years ago, I guess, uh, I didn't really know anything about the restaurant industry or the food industry other than I was a foodie, <laughs> quote unquote. Um, so not a lot, but I knew a lot about growing businesses because I have done that with my with my uh, business clients who usually have professional services types firms. So I brought a different um, angle to Craft Creamery, I guess, a different way of thinking I think to what um, that maybe is often done in food. Right. And then Steve, I mean, I, you know, I know you went to Vegas for a little while. You worked for one of David Chang's places. You came back to Houston, you got Eunice open. You were there for a little bit. Why did an ice cream shop seem like the right next move for you? That's a really good question. <laughs> so um, when Kim and I first met her son's birthday was shortly after that. and. He was what, Kim, 14, I guess? Yeah. Coming 14. Yeah, he was turning 14. And as part of a sort of a way in, right? I'm he's a big chocolate ice cream fan. And I decided I was going to make him an ice cream, which we called Chocosaurus Rex. And then it became popular in the family, right? And so we would take ice cream to Thanksgiving and birthdays and blah, 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 whatever. And everyone say, oh, man, this is really good. You should open an ice cream shop. And Kim and I would look at each other and laugh and go, yeah, yeah, we should open an ice cream shop. That's funny. Um, and then when pandemic hit, like everybody else, like, you know, everybody closed. So we were looking for what was next. I was looking for what was next. And Kim, because of her business background, said, you know, you should really not work for, you need to do your own thing again. Because you're always most happy when you do your own thing. And um, we made a connection with some people through some connections that she had that were looking at a very large purchase of a very large corporation didn't happen, but we stayed in touch with them over time. We knew there was always going to be some kind of a project happening 
And um, at one of the meetings, I said, Kim, should I just take some ice cream just to try to change the conversation, right? Because sometimes you bring something different to the table and the conversation changes. Um, and we put the ice cream on the table and they tasted it. And then about 45 minutes on a whiteboard, we had a business and then we started looking for a place to make ice cream. Kim, what was that like for you? I mean, you know, this realization that this went from sort of private hobby to new concept. Well, I was, I was thrilled on one hand because I knew Steve had something to say as a chef that wasn't being said when he was working for someone else. Like I just, that was just a, a sense that I had about him from the moment I met him, that there was so much he still had left to say. And and so then when we we took the ice cream to the to the famous meeting and 45 minutes later had a business, it was we walked out and we were both like I've seen things happen fast in my world. You know, I help people think differently and and it really is kind of miraculous. But that was the fastest I've ever seen anything happen. Um, but it was thrilling. And we thought, well, gosh, it's going to be whatever, six more months at least before we find a place, build it out open. And then. Um, the following week, one of the team members came to the table and said, Hey, how about the old Kiwi Creamery space on Westheimer? And we were like, what's Kiwi Creamery? We'd never heard of it. And uh, I, I will say I had, but it didn't last very long. It didn't last long. They didn't last long. They, they, um, yeah, apparently they went back to New Zealand, um, after the, when the pandemic had started, but at any rate, that that space fit us fine. And when we finally got, it took a little bit to get the, the lease negotiated, but we once the lease was negotiated and signed, we were making ice cream and selling ice cream 19 days later. So it was, it was pretty amazing to kind of take something from a concept the first week in September and then open really on Black Friday. So, you know, the good news, we always say the good news is you, you know, you can open in 19 days and the bad news is you open in 19 days. And so there were just a lot of things we had to catch up with, but it's been an incredible experience. Yeah, I guess, Steve, maybe talk about kind of your approach to making the ice cream and creating the flavors, because, I mean, you're doing, you're doing kind of the normal, you know, chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, coffee, whatever, but you're also doing some more unusual flavors. Right. I think because I come at it from the savory side of the table, um, I'm not maybe bound by or entrenched in sort of the same rules and thought processes that maybe a pastry chef would be. Um, like, for example, we make chicken and waffles right now that's on the menu. Um, and it happens to be a delicious ice cream, and yet it tastes like chicken and waffles. The One of the Burger Guys flavors was jalapeno cornbread. That was one of the first ones we put on. And the ice cream itself is just very pure ice cream. Like it is cream for milking, sugar, eggs, and whatever it's flavored with. There's no, you know, we don't use gums and starches and whatever other kind of additives that uh, some of these commercial ice creams use uh, just because we don't think it's ice cream. Like we, we want to do it, you know, as simply and cleanly as we possibly can. Because then, the, then you can actually taste the stuff that's in it that makes it taste like things. Yeah, I will say I was there one day and you had pho ice cream mm -hmm. and I took a spoonful of it and it has, I mean, it had the the herbs and the cilantro and the star anise, all of that captured perfectly in the ice cream. And I mm -hmm. went, this is all I ever want of this. Like one spoonful mm -hmm. is is all I ever want. 
Yeah, you know what I've learned there, Eric, is that something is everybody's favorite. And and whether or not um, I necessarily want to eat a bowl full of it, like, for example, the pho, that's on the menu at Kalba as a dessert. Like, I wouldn't necessarily sit down and eat a bowl full of it, but people like it. You know, when we did the brisket, every time I put the brisket on, there's three people I know they're going to show up and pick up a quart when I announce the brisket's out because that's what they happen to love that flavor. I never tire when people taste the brisket or the pho or the chicken and waffles, the different things we have. Like I never tire of them taking that first bite and thinking this should be ice cream. Wait, it doesn't taste like ice cream, Mm -hmm. but it is ice cream. And they have this really interesting look, the confusion and then the light bulb. And it's like, it's such a delight. Like I think it's one of the best things about having an ice cream place is that piece with the, the, the kind of strange flavors, the really creative kind of forward flavors, but also the fact that people come in for ice cream and they're really happy to come in for ice cream, you know, and they usually leave really happy because they've had some good ice cream. And that piece I think is maybe different than Steve's experience as, as a chef, you know, like sometimes people aren't happy or they want things the way they want it. And with ice cream, they just come in to kind of be happy, really just some sort of celebration. All right, so so tell me, how do you make brisket ice cream? Well, you know, Eric, I'm not that smart. So I make it <laughs> the same way I make chocolate ice cream. And the chocolate ice cream is made with chocolate, and the brisket ice cream is made with brisket. Like, it, it's, there's there's really kind of no magic to it. It's It always surprises me when people say, when there's brisket in the brisket ice cream, I'm like, yeah, and there's vanilla in the vanilla ice cream. That's kind of how it's made. So I have come up with a process that is not, obvious for how it's made and you know we kind of keep that to ourselves because not everyone wants to see how the magician tricks work um but it, it is flavored just naturally with brisket and the stuff that you flavor a brisket with and then I, I guess maybe you know talk more generally about kind of flavor development and you know because i think one of the things is you know i eat i, I spread my ice cream dollars around mm-hmm. and and i've noticed this trend of you know, more inclusions, cookie, candy, gotcha. ribbons of this, all that stuff. You're not really doing that. And, and, no. I, and, and I, I, I recognize that as a deliberate choice and a valid choice, but, I, but I'm curious to hear kind of your take on what makes for a good ice cream flavor. Well, for me, it better taste like what it's supposed to taste like. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with lavender ice cream that other people make. Cause I'll always try it cause I'm a sucker for lavender as a flavor personally. Um, but I've not had one other than ours that actually tastes like anything close to lavender. So my concept, uh, there are concept, the way we think about the ice cream is, um, you know, the inclusions are great, but it's not ice cream. Like you can put snicker bars and doodles and pretzels and whatever else in it. And I'll do it if it makes sense. But as a sort of starting point, that's not my starting point. My starting point is the ice cream itself better be delicious, right? And then, okay, let's put stuff in it that makes sense. So, you know, I have a candied pecan that has candied pecans in it because the name is candied pecan, right? Like much like you said with the burgers at Burger Guys, um, there was interesting things on them, but there wasn't a lot of interesting things on them. There was three or four things that made it taste like what it was going to taste like. And then, you know, don't overdo it and make it so confusing. You can't actually taste what it is you're trying to eat. Um, And we have made a conscious decision that ice cream is about texture 
And for me, you know, frozen chocolate bits and pieces of cookies and stuff isn't for me a pleasing texture. Doesn't mean it's wrong. There's plenty of space for everybody. I understand what they're doing. It's just not what we do. All right. So so let's get really nerdy. What is the ideal ice cream texture? Or how do you know when you're testing a recipe that you've achieved it? I was tasting with an Italian gentleman who was two Italian guys. And they didn't know that I speak Italian. So they were arguing with each other in Italian. Basically, he was trying to get the guy that owns the gelato shop, the gelato factory to let me use his equipment. And the way this gentleman described the ice cream is that it felt like silk on your palate. So like a great chocolate, like a great chocolate, you never, if you get a great piece of chocolate, you never have to chew it, right? You're, the Swiss say when you get a great piece of chocolate, all you should do is put it on your tongue. And the chocolate should do the rest of the work because it allows it to fill your palate the appropriate way, I think, right? So for me, the texture has to be silky, I think, is the best thing. It, it, the texture of the ice cream, even in small amounts, fills your palate. It fills your mouth because it's not icy and it's not, um, you know, it's not a bunch of um, ice crystals are kind of sharp and it kind of pokes and damages at your tongue where our stuff because of the fat content is really smooth and it just kind of coats. Yeah, let me, let me bring you back into this. I mean, is the, the chief tasting officer, <laughs> what, what are some of your favorites or, or like what was maybe what was the one where the first time you, you got a spoonful of it, you just, you knew like, this is, this is spot on. Yeah. He, Steve probably knows what I'm going to say. The peanut butter stracciatella, like, whoo, that one to me, I had never tasted peanut butter ice cream that actually tasted like peanut butter. You know, like I've tasted kind of vanilla with peanut butter cups in it and that sort of thing, but like really a solid peanut butter. And then he put those, the chocolate in and that just did it for me. That's still one of my favorites, but even his, like, I love all the experimental fun flavors. I think he, I think Steve does an amazing job at those. Um, But I would, his chocolate, like, oh my gosh, it's, it is, it's, it's like silk and the pistachio, like I, and, and so really my job, I really am the chief tasting officer. I do go down there from time to time and go like, okay, like, I think the peanut butter needs a little bit more peanut butter again, or, you know, I might say something like that or, or, or that sort of thing. I take my job as chief tasting officer very seriously, don't I, babe? But it's, um, but I, I love the, just the creativity. And a lot of times where these flavors come from, um, interestingly, of course, Steve has a lot of, he's cooked around the world. So he has a lot of cultural references to draw from. And then me coming from outside the food industry, I have no limitations on what I think could be a flavor. <laughs> so sometimes I'll just come up with some really off the wall things. And he's like, you know, that could work. So it's an interesting combination when we start sort of spitballing the flavors, so to speak. Right. And and the the name Chief Tasting Officer is kind of a joke in some ways, but at the same time, it's important. Um, it's like when I write a menu in a savory restaurant, you know, I can write the coolest menu in the world. And if you as diners don't get it or you don't want it, it doesn't matter because no one's going to pay for it. And I'll be sitting there with all the food all by myself. So I can have these great ideas about what ice cream should be. Um, like, for example, from the very beginning, there was never going to be anything in the ice cream except ice cream. Like we were going to, I was going to stand on no inclusions, no chips, no nuts, no nothing. And the feedback from the first, whatever, 15, 20 people that tasted it are like, yeah, it's great. It's too much. I need a break. I need something in there 
to help give my palate a rest so I can come back to the ice cream. So then, okay, yeah, we'll do, I'll do what's smart. I'll do smart inclusions. So what are maybe one or two of the flavors with inclusions and, and how did you? Sure. Um, I do a mint chip because I think you kind of have to do a mint chip. It's one of those, you know, if you had to pick six flavors that every ice cream shop has to have, I think mint chip's probably one of them. Absolutely. Um, the, the candy pecan was born of, when we are in Texas, I do have to have some kind of a pecan flavor on there. And the only way with ice cream that I've found to keep the sort of toasty texture of a nut is to candy it. So, you know, that one makes sense. Um, and then the pistachio has pistachios in it. And then our number one flavor is this Persian ice cream called Bastani, which is uh, saffron and rose water and pistachio. And um, ours has a significant amount of pistachio in it because I like the texture break and I like the contrast of flavors between the actual pistachio and then the ice cream base itself. Have you tried anything that just didn't work? Oh, absolutely. Of course. Or that's not the right way to say it. I tried things that haven't worked yet. Yet. <laughs> there's, there's a few that still have eluded me. Um, for the most part, I get pretty close the first time. Um, and then we'll taste it. We'll have other people taste it. And then it gets refined. But I'll say that the peanut butter that we run today is the peanut butter I made the very first time before we had when we were making it in our kitchen. Um, we've messed with it a little bit back and forth and Kim's like, yeah, no, you got to go back to the other one. So we went back to the original form of the chocolate is exactly the same way I made it the first time I ever made it. So, you know, some of it comes from, I've been doing this. I've been in food a long time. So I have a pretty good palate and a pretty good concept for how flavor comes and where it comes from. Um, but also I've learned that when you freeze things, the tastes of things change. Certain things become more predominant and certain things become, you know, you can taste them less when they're cold. So that's been a learning process of like, okay, the one that I'm still working on is chai tea. Because every time I make it, it's like, yeah, too much cardamom, not enough anise, too much cinnamon, whatever. And you have to learn like the fine balance of when you freeze it, it tastes like this. So maybe uh, one or both of you talk to me about kind of long-term plans. You've got a scoop shop in Montrose. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you aspire to kind of, you, you have a couple of restaurant clients, do you aspire to sort of wholesale distribution or more scoop shops? Or how do you see this developing in the next, say, couple of years? Can you yeah, take that? We, yeah, I'll take that one. Absolutely. So um, we're officially ready to go into retail. We had some packaging things to work out. And so um, we see ourselves going into more sort of small gourmet sort of grocery type situations. So we're ready to do that. That's like as of last week. We have a couple of, we plan a couple of more scoop shops. Um, we don't have anything solid set in stone yet, but we're absolutely uh, looking around and, and seeing, you know, what other areas in Houston would, would be a great, great fit for us. We love the Montrose location. We love, uh, yeah, the, the folks in Montrose and that's been just such a great incubator space for us. It's been wonderful. And then we just continue to, yeah, call on different restaurant clients and are really getting a good feel for the types of restaurants that we actually, with our ice cream, solve a problem for. So we hope to really grow that part of the business as well. Because that's just, that's just a lot of fun, I think, for Steve to go back into restaurants and, and yeah, put his ice cream on the menu. It's just, I think, very fulfilling for him. Right. And from the beginning, the wholesale part was always going to be a, a a portion of it at least because i know as a chef it was always hard 
to find stuff that's at the quality we make that was available from the wholesale market. Because I'm nothing wrong with what everybody's doing, but typically from the wholesale market, you're buying it from a big box vendor and you're putting it on something else anyway. And it's, there's just not a lot of thought behind it sometimes. And so, you know, we're trying to definitely forward ourselves on the wholesale side. Well, and if you, you know, if you're a restaurant that's very ingredient focused and sourcing local this and local that, you don't want a national chain ice cream that's full of air and, exactly. you know, artificial flavors and all that kind of stuff. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because ours, as you said, ours, most American ice cream is 100% air. It's for every you know gallon of ice cream, there's a gallon of air. Ours is about, depending on the flavor, about 10%. So it has a much heavier texture. It tastes much more prevalent and it uh, gives a much better mouthfeel, especially when it's like, you know, our... Last Christmas, our gingerbread with um, pecan pie was the one that all of the all the people that are involved in craft creamery thought was the big winner. Yeah. And then, in terms of the shop, are you are you only doing scoops? Are you doing Sundays? I, I mean, please tell me you're doing milkshakes because I, I I need a good milkshake in my life. I'll I'll be honest <laughs> with you. We keep debating milkshakes. Just the, the it's the ice cream so intense that you know a twenty ounce milkshake would put most people down. I so agree about we, the milkshake, by the way. Like, I just think we should serve a smaller one, but I feel like we need it. What, we'll yeah, hopefully we we'll will probably, twist Steve's might, arm. <laughs> that might be on the on the on the horizon. We are starting. Um, I think this week we're starting um, custom sam- ice cream sandwiches. So okay. you can pick up to three of your own flavors, and we'll make it right there in front of you. And um, you know, we do floats and. We're going to get back to doing our Sunday Sundays. Um, so once a week, it'll be something different. Um, and then, you know, you have to say that is Sunday, 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 Sunday. That's the intention, but I'm, you know, I'm not the wrestling dude. So yeah, um, it, actually, it actually, the first time I said that to the developers, they went, what? And I did it, you know, in wrestling guy voice. And they went, oh, now I get it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. As, as long as we're on the same page. Absolutely. I mean, you, maybe you can come in and do the voice robot for us. Or, yeah, know, I'm working on it. Yeah, okay. my, we'll, we'll, I'll work with uh, Michael Carroll to get a little a little <laughs> voice effect in that in the in the actual uh, broadcast version of that. There you go. Um, and then there are some other concepts on the horizon that might show up in that shop. Um, and then there's collaborations that we started to do. So, for example, from now through Thanksgiving, we're doing a collaboration with Crave Cupcake, where we're doing a, a pumpkin. What do we call it, Kim? Cinnamon, pumpkin, cinnamon, cinnamon cheesecake, pumpkin ice cream. cheesecake, ice cream. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's basically it's the crave pumpkin cupcake in our cinnamon cheesecake ice cream base. Um, and then there'll be more with them after that. Uh, we've done some smaller ones in the in the past, and we're looking for more of those kinds of opportunities going forward. Well, good. I, I have to say that that kind of brings me to the end of my questions. Is there something mm-hmm. you would like to discuss that I haven't asked you about? Hmm. I don't think so, Kim. Gosh, just just come come see us. We we have a saying: grab a spoon, see you soon. And we we'd love to see see people out. It's <laughs> it's just a yeah, such a fun place to visit. All right. Well, before I let you go, we have to play the lightning round. Mm-hmm. Five easy questions. Five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Kim Kaiser, let me start with you. What is your favorite ice cream flavor? 
peanut butter stracciatella from Craft Creamery. <laughs> Steve, how about you? Uh, Bastani. Steve, what is the first band you ever saw in concert? Oh, wow. Uh, Day on the Green, Open Coliseum. It was Peter Frampton, Dave Mason, Fleetwood Mac, and Led Zeppelin. That's a very impressive answer. Kim, how about you? Oh, 1981 World Blue Oyster Cult. Also an impressive answer. <laughs> Kim, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Oh, my gosh. It, you know, this is so embarrassing, but it's probably McDonald's fries that I steal out of my son's dinner because he's such a McDonald's addict. <laughs> Steve, how about you? I haven't had one in a long time, but uh, in and out double, double, basted. All right. Steve, who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? It's a good question. Nolan Ryan, because he makes great beef. There you go. Kim, how about you? Oh, mine's a blast from the past. It would have to be U of H's Andre Ware. Heisman Trophy winner. I think it was 1989 or 90. I'm not sure which. That sounds about right. Uh, and then, Kim, finally, when you go to a pizzeria for the first time, what are your go-to toppings? Mm, pepperoni and sausage. I keep it really simple. Steve, how about you? Uh, cheese, but it better be cooked right. <laughs> all right. Uh, give us the, uh, the website and the social media and all that for Craft Creamery. CraftCreameryHTX.com. And both uh, Facebook and Instagram is at CraftCreameryHTX. Kim and Steve, thank you very much. Appreciate it, Eric. Thanks so much. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.